I think in a lot of ways, Genty has been a guinea pig for a lot of the evolution that's happened at Tatler over the last couple of years. Since early 2020, when Tatler relaunched and rebranded, it's gone from being a society magazine that covered luxury lifestyle and quote unquote high society to, you know, evolving into a much more progressive idea of what influence and what power and what society is. So going from covering like a few families to covering the best of power, influence and style across Asia, regardless of what the lineage of that is. And Gen T, a few years before this relaunch, was very much a kind of test balloon in that regards, in that it was a platform for people who were successful, who were shaping the future of Asia, regardless of where they came from. And we were launching new media products like uh, newsletters, social media, podcasts for this audience. We were launching a new type of media uh, and a very different kind of tone of voice, a very different brand identity. And I think a lot of the success of that led to Tatler eventually seeing the market to evolve. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 73 of the So This My Why podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya. And today's guest is Lee Williamson, Regional Editorial Director of Generation T at Tatler Asia Group, where he oversees three of Tatler's flagship brands, Gen T, Friends and Female, and Asia's most influential. Here are some things I found really interesting with Lee's story. He grew up in England, but has spent the past two decades working as a journalist in China. His first foray was with That's China, which I actually found intriguing because it was owned by an English entrepreneur who wrote a viral article in 2013 entitled, You'll Never Be Chinese, detailing his difficulties in establishing a media business in China and which reportedly coincided with the exodus of foreign expats from the country. Lee offers his understanding of those events, how state censorship affected him and his work, and also his experience as editor of Time Out Beijing, which included conducting the first Ai Weiwei interview published in China since his detainment. And last but not least, we talk about his role in establishing Genty as a brand, how Genty first came about, how he fits in with Tetler as a whole, how they curate the list over a span of eight months a year, the benefits of being on the Genty lease, the art of creating community, and how they make money. Because least you forget, Genty is a business. We cover all that and more in this episode. So are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. Is there a story behind the name Lee? No, my parents liked the name and I guess never thought that I'd end up moving to Asia. Didn't even conceive of the fact that it might be confusing and a bit of an annoyance for me later on in life. It's more difficult than you might think in Asia, particularly in Hong Kong, being called Lee, because everybody sees an email from me and assumes my name is Williamson. So I get a lot of emails like Dear Williamson, or they just write like Dear William. Like they just looked at the name and were like, hmm, let's just pick this random element of one of the names and call him that. I think for anyone who's listening, they will quickly ascertain from your accent that you're English. So you grew up in England. What was your childhood like back then? My childhood was very loving. I moved around uh, a few times, which at the time felt like this huge ordeal, moving from like one part of a very small country to another part, just like 100 miles down the road. But at the time, it felt like the biggest deal because England's so small that, you know, moving 100 miles down the road feels like a, a huge thing. Born in Birmingham and then moved to Wiltshire, which is like where Stonehenge is, and then eventually to Cambridgeshire, where we moved into a converted windmill. 
So very kind of idyllic, this kind of fantasy idea of what an English home is in, in the countryside. It was very beautiful and very peaceful and tranquil. That's probably why when I graduated, I was like, let's get out of here and go to go to China for some excitement. But yeah, that perhaps instilled in me subconsciously that wanderlust and being comfortable with change, being comfortable to moving to new places, which I eventually did my whole adult life. I've never really been in one place too long. So was there a reason why you pursued politics at Durham University? Was it because you thought it would give you a chance to grow abroad? No, I mean, I think one of the things you'll find out, Lingya, is that most of my life is unplanned. Like, I love that John Lennon quote of life is what happens when you're making other plans, right? It's a cliche, but it's true, particularly for me. So I thought I was going to study law from like the age of 10, 11, up until the time it came to submit the university applications, mostly because... I was quite smart at school. My grades were pretty good. But obviously what I had in book smarts, I lacked in imagination. And so I was just like, I was just like, I want to be a lawyer. Why? I don't know. They looked like they're doing pretty well on TV. And then when it came to actually thinking about it, when I was submitting my university application, I was like, oh, do I want to be a lawyer? Mm, actually, now I better think about it. And just like a year before, I'd started to get into music in quite a big way. I kind of became this indie kid and started to grow my hair long and dye it crazy colors. And it all came randomly and I haven't thought about this in a long time but I was thinking about it today when I was thinking about this interview and I realized like a lot of it emanated from the strangest strangest place like I remember getting a contract mobile phone when I was 16 which was a big deal maybe even 15 my parents got me a mobile which was like on a contract rather than like a pay-as-you-go my friends like whoa dude that's amazing you can spend what you like on this phone that's amazing anyway and part of this package from Vodafone the provider was they send you a free album and there was like a Destiny's Child album and these other things, most of which I had no interest in. And there was this one from this band, the Manic Street Preachers, who I'd kind of heard of and I knew about one of their songs. So I got that as a free album and I really liked it. And then I listened to their earlier stuff and I loved that even more. This album called The Holy Bible and Generation Terrorist and Everything Must Go. And they were talking about like Jean-Paul Sartre and, and Camus and Noam Chomsky and all these literary references. And I was like, whoa, this sounds amazing. And they're so angry and they're so like, cool so I started reading all this material so I started like reading it Chomsky and, and Camus and stuff so I had a kind of big change in that period and then I was like um I don't do law so I guess politics and then my options are open because you know I can always do a law conversion course and uh, I don't know like I'm into it so yeah that was my like I'm not eating a McDonald's man because it's too corporate phase and then yeah I ended up going to university and no regrets Durham was a great place because it's collegiate you do get a, lot, a really full experience outside of your education as well. There was like an unofficial motto at Durham, which is like, don't let your degree get in the way of your education. And like, I definitely learned a lot there aside from politics. So you're in this bubble. How on earth do you go from this little bubble to China? So let's do a little bit of an about turn. I think it was a bit of a bumpy road. That period of time, like a last year of uni and, and leaving uni, I wasn't particularly equipped for adulthood. And for like the first time in my life, I spiraled into a depression, to be completely honest. And like I had some issues and, and I couldn't quite finish my degree because I was just really burying my head in the sand and I had all this kind of anxiety and stress and so on. And so like it took me about a year to kind of get my life back on track. And then I finally did. I sought counseling and I felt good. And I was like, okay, what do I do now? Well, I guess I'll kind of push the reset button and I'll just go away for a year, teach English have some fun. You know, I have some friends that are kind of doing the whole TEFL thing, teaching English abroad. It looks like a lot of fun, a bit of arrested development, honestly. Like I don't have to go out for another year if I go away and teach English. So I was like, well, I'll just go do that. 
So I randomly decided to move to China because the Olympics are cool and China looked like this whole new frontier. Everyone's very excited about kind of rising China. To be completely honest, they didn't require a TEFL certificate. You could just <laughs> rock up and go, hey, I speak English. And so a combination of those factors led me to go to Hangzhou. I wanted to avoid Beijing and Shanghai because I wanted the real China, quote unquote. So I ended up moving to a city called Hangzhou, which is a couple of hours by train from Shanghai, where Chairman Mao learned to read English. So the mythology goes. And was it a shock to be there? Did the locals, most of them speak English or was it just a struggle learning that you couldn't access Google and all these other things they're used to? Yeah, it was great. It was exactly what I was looking for. And I was looking to be taken completely out of my comfort zone and just have a totally different experience than a lot of my friends were having. To wake up and every day to be challenging, but challenging in a, in a really fun, exhilarating way. So yeah, I was kind of like a, a fish out of water, but it was great. I mean, to begin with, honestly, I think I was just trying to escape my problems the past difficult year I'd had in the UK. And so I was like, this is great. I can basically be like boozy student again and like teach English and Korea can wait. But then I started to grow up in Hangzhou over time. And how do you end up working at That's China in 2009? So I started writing for this local listings and culture magazine called That's China. A friend of mine who worked at the same English school got a job as the editor, and he was basically getting all of his mates to write for them. Anyone who seemed vaguely cultured or scholarly, or not even in my case, just get them to write stuff. So I started doing it. I dallied a little bit with the university newspaper and website. Always had considered myself a creative without ever actually kind of really having the guts to really apply myself to it. So this was the first time I was actually writing and it was a blast because I was not somewhere where a lot of people I knew would see what I was writing and would would be judgmental of it. I felt definitely a, a certain type of freedom to do silly stuff and actually hang on a second. So randomly I ended up doing this column called Challenge Lee or something like that, where basically every month I do like a different challenge that a reader would set and then kind of write about it kind of first person gonzo style. And the the relaunch issue that my friend, the former teacher, launched, I dressed up as uh, Santa Claus and went busking on the streets with my friend who dressed up, was this big like six foot four strapping rugby guy. He was dressed up as Mrs. Claus in this tiny little Santa Claus dress, tiny little red dress. And so they ended up taking a photo from that and putting it on the cover of the relaunch issue. So I know this sounds totally premeditated. You just happen to be speaking to me in my study where I have the old magazines down there. But this was the relaunch issue. <laughs> so this is me dressed as Santa Claus. I had a great time as you can kind of gather. So this is kind of a young me close up. One of my friends who was doing the design for it, his inspiration was one of those National Geographic covers with a close-up of a gorilla's face. I was like, oh, thanks. That's charming. So as you can probably tell, it was just a whole lot of fun. And so I just didn't feel restricted by anything. I was just writing and enjoying it and kind of cutting my teeth in a way that I didn't really feel like there were any consequences to doing it bad. I was practicing. So I was digging further into that China. Isn't it state-owned and it's pretty much written for expats in the country? It's a very complicated story about licensees. And yeah, it was owned by a local Hangzhou entrepreneur who had a media business and did a lot of custom publications. And this magazine was basically, I think, his lost leader. He did it for the prestige of running an English language magazine. It was a title that was created about 10 years before, then defunct. And this guy bought the license to publish under it. So it was just like one Chinese boss smoking Lichon cigarettes and drinking green tea and not really interfering too much with these strange people and their ideas of what should be in the magazine. I read some of the articles that you can still find by Mark Kito, who started That's Beijing, That's Shanghai, That's Guangzhou. And 
he was basically saying that he had a really, really difficult time because he was a foreigner and he was never treated as a local. Was this a story that was very prominent at the time? Were you aware of that tension? I met Mark Kitto in Beijing later on when I was at Time Out, and he was doing his kind of leaving tour as he was about to leave China after he released that article, which was a fairly kind of bitter farewell yeah. to China. Basically, and he went viral, didn't it? Yeah, picture. exactly. Every expat in China was talking about it for that month. And yeah, and he basically yeah, wrote this article said you'll never be Chinese, and it was talking about how his experience of trying to do business in China, trying to do a joint venture, and ultimately, long story short, getting screwed over and getting kicked out of the company that he formed. And at the time, I caught a lot of people's attention because uh, I think it was more of a David Goliath story. You know, this happens all the time, and big multinationals like Danone come in and do a joint venture with a Chinese company and. And they kind of lose their like the intellectual property and lose court battles and so on. But they're not so interesting stories because they're big corporations. But this guy happened to him, and it happened to him in the very early days. And he did a very good job because he works in media of kind of getting the story out there about uh, what happened to him. And then many years later, when he decided to leave, he wrote this article, "You'll Never Be Chinese," which basically, as the name implies, wasn't a particularly fun farewell. That's not the experience I had at all. Uh, clearly uh, got screwed over in business. And I don't deny that happens an awful lot. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're a multinational corporation or a kind of SME owner. For me, on just the anecdotal, small-scale level, I never felt any prejudice or racism. Quite the opposite, in fact. I think I was a lot more welcomed and tolerated than it would have been the other way around. Than someone, Chinese, for example, coming to the UK and having as bad at English as I have had Chinese and not integrating as much as I didn't integrate. Yeah. So nothing that I found at all. With the power of retrospection, why do you think that's the reason? Is it because do you think you didn't start your own business and was trying to get a huge chunk of the profits, perhaps? Apparently there was this exodus of expatriates from China, especially in the literary and journalistic scene at the time. And they also wrote essays about leaving too. Yeah. So for me, I mean, definitely, I don't know if these are exactly the same time, but like a, a couple of years after this, Xi Jinping's China did start to manifest itself. After he came into power in 2012, definitely the the gradual opening up of the country that was happening under Hu Jintao for the previous decade did begin to kind of reverse itself. And obviously, we've very much seen the consequences of that over the past five or so years in terms of the way China's relationship with the world has changed, the way China has changed. And so, yeah, definitely a couple of years later, there was more of a kind of crackdown on, on certain things. And uh, journalist visas not being renewed, some of whom are my friends. But yeah, I, I don't know if this was necessarily the same time or related to what Mark went through. I think it was more just like in China from like 2012 to now, basically. You know, if you just look at the two Olympics, the 2008 Olympics that announced China's arrival on the world stage, re-emergence and then the world stage, and everybody's been so massively impressed. And the narrative being mostly positive. And you compare that to the narrative ahead of this upcoming Olympics, like the Winter Olympics in Beijing, it's kind of like night and day. You know, now you have diplomatic boycotts of the Olympics and China kind of digging its heels in the mud and being much less like, oh, please please love me, look, here I am, judge me, just being like, no, this is who we are, being much more assertive in its way. So those two kind of totem poles, I think, are emblematic of the way China changed and ultimately why I decided to leave as well. Did you feel like there was an increased censorship in terms of what you could freely write without being concerned about your own safety? 
I was writing about where to get a good burger and like the best way to see the hidden stuff in the Forbidden City. I think we've missed part of the story, but I went to uh, eventually work at Time Out Beijing and then, and then yeah. run it as editor for a few years. So no, I mean, I didn't feel for my safety in any shape or form. We didn't have to submit to censors, but there was a certain amount of self-censoring. So previous editors to me, they did used to have to go through the government censors before they would publish. But what they would do, they told me, was... Every issue, every month, the censors would take one article out, right? Because they're doing their job. So they need to prove to their boss that they are on the case. They're being vigilant. So they would take something out, even if it was the most vanilla edition ever. So what the editors, my predecessors did is they would write something that they would know had gone too far, but they wrote it to get taken out. So they wrote it not really caring that much about the piece, but just kind of doing it because they knew it. It would be the one thing they take out, and so they'd be very strategic. So they wouldn't get anything that they worked on that they loved taking out. They'd just get this one piece that they kind of banged out. I mean, certainly there's a certain amount of self-censorship. Anyone who publishes in, in mainland China has a certain amount of self-censorship around the particular kind of hot-button issues. But for the most part, my job was loving Beijing and prophesizing about how great Beijing was to live in as a city, which was a really easy thing to do because I love Beijing. It was a fantastic place, especially in those early years. It did feel like the new frontier, like the streets are paved with gold. This is the land of opportunity. This is like the new world, the new world order. But certainly this is like where the new narratives are. And uh, yeah, it was thrilling. So my job was to go and stand on a milk crate every day and, and say like to a global English language audience, this place is great and you should come here and visit or live. And if you do, make sure you go see this tourist attraction or this show or make sure you eat here. And that was a lot of fun. Wasn't that a time where the media landscape was shifting a lot and you really had to adapt to the times? Again, not particularly writing about where to get good Beijing duck. (laughs) (laughs) She had to relaunch timeoutbeijing.com as well, right? Yeah, we did. So that was mostly just to improve the, the website, to improve the UX, because it was a bit of a clunky old site. But yeah, that wasn't necessarily anything to do with censorship or what we could or couldn't write about. It was more just about improving the product. And I think that experience was very much led to my interest in product development in media and kind of seeing media as product, because it was my first real like rolling up my sleeves experience of how do you improve a product so it can better serve the needs of your audience. I originally got into media for the glamour and the glory, obviously. And then the kind of fun of having a byline and, and being, being, being in a creative industry. And this was the first time I did something, which I've subsequently done a lot in my career and that I really enjoy, which is building products that serve audience needs and kind of building communities around that. So that's what relaunching timeoutaging.com was all about. Can you take us into your mindset at the time as an editor? How were you thinking about the various products that Time Out was offering and how you positioning to the people? As you said in your bio that you had three profitable years. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think if you want a, a successful career in media, you can't live in a bubble. And it's increasingly difficult, particularly if you're in lifestyle media, if you're not in hard news, it's increasingly difficult to have that kind of church state divide between like editorial and everything that involves money. As like the senior editorial person there, it was my role. I saw it as my role to work very closely with the commercial department to build products that could be monetizable. So in my time there, we launched a family magazine because there was a lot of revenue streams coming there from international schools. We launched a map, which we did in partnership with the Beijing airport, um, the international capital airport there, and any number of different... We had to pivot quite quickly to WeChat like everybody did. So we had to be agile because all the advertisers wanted to be on WeChat and that's where the audience was. So that was one of my first lessons as as well of like, you need to go where your audience is. 
you need to sometimes make some tough decisions. And sometimes that means cutting down on stuff that you may personally love, but you realize there's less of a market demand for it. So in my case, like most media junkies, I love print, but like there was less of an appetite for it from our readership and less of an interest in it from our advertiser base. And so like over time, the print product was getting thinner and thinner, but our digital output was increasing and we were on more and more channels when focusing on WeChat and so on. And I think that agility, especially working in media where margins are getting squeezed and there's definitely more prosperous industries to be in. I'm very bullish on media in general, by the way. Maybe we'll get into that later. But it was an important lesson to make, like making difficult decisions in that regard. But as an editor, ultimately your job is to just make fun, cool editorial that people want to read and they want to talk about that they want to share. Like the stories that I remember are some of the more kind of heavyweight stories. Like we did the first interview with Ai Weiwei to be published in mainland China since he was detained back in 2010. We did uh, the first ever sex issue. We did this massive sex survey uh, and got in a little bit of trouble for it, but it was fun, <laughs> kind of pushed the boundaries. We did a big cover. It was just this huge red cover that across it just said, sex. <laughs> just said like, you're having it. Here are all your dirty secrets. And um, we did get some international schools, which we were distributed to writing us angry letters and, and sending us back the issues. It's kind of fun editorial wins like that. I remember we did this article in our food section called the 7-Eleven Challenge. And we got like two of the best chefs in Beijing, gave them like a hundred RMB, like 15 US dollars. I said, go buy stuff in 7-Eleven and make a gourmet meal out of it. So we gave them a challenge to kind of use these ingredients, only stuff they get in 7-Eleven and try and make a gastronomic feat out of it. So kind of fun stuff like that. These are the things you remember as an editor. I wanted to talk more about that Iwerway edition because that sounds really, really fascinating. I mean, what's the backstory behind that? How did you get him to agree to do it? I wish I had a more interesting story to, to tell you, Lingya. It was more just that Time Out International wanted to do it because he had a, a big show coming up, I think at the Serpentine or the Tate or something. And so they helped to arrange it. So I went to up to his compound on a, on a Saturday morning in Tao Changdi, and we interviewed him and he was delightful actually. He took a few minutes to warm up, but when he did, he was very gracious and, and generous with his time and yeah, fun and funny and, and honest. And uh, this is the time when he was really big on Instagram, was posting all the time. So he posted a couple of photos of me during the interview and I kind of walked out and was like, ah, I'm on my way Instagram. And then I kind of like made some dumb joke on one of the images he put up and he was like, ha ha. And I was like, oh my God, look at me, the, the I Weiwei Instagram buddies. So yeah, so that was interesting. So it was the, the first interview with him since published in mainland China since he'd been detained in 2010. That was a landmark deal. But again, speaking of the kinds of hoops that you sometimes have to jump in in China, like we couldn't put it on the cover just in case the wrong official saw it in like the airport or something going to Starbucks and was like, ah, so we ran it, but we just didn't make a, a song and dance of it. He did his first ever headline show in a mainland China gallery in 2015, which is crazy because he was massive by then internationally, but he'd never actually done a big show in mainland China. And we worked with him and he designed our cover, which was awesome. This is going to seem like I'm the most egotistical person in the world because I have like that cover before but I actually I'm actually looking at it now so just for the same sense of illustrations <laughs> I mean my study I, I will show it to you I got a signed copy so he designed our cover and obviously it said I like in his character but we couldn't say it was designed by Ai Weiwei so at the corner we had to put I I watch this then guess who's designed our cover what it means <laughs> that speaks to those kind of like opaque laws that you have to kind of get around so how do you go from timeout to working at Tetlock? 
What really appealed to me about the Generation T project, the Gen T project, was this really exciting new brand, new project. It had really worthy aspirations, which is trying to build community and connecting and inspiring young leaders in Asia who are shaping the future of the region for the better. So it was really cool to begin with. And it's an opportunity to work regionally, but then also it was a brand new project. So I was like the first hire to use startup parlance. So we cover startups a lot at Gen T. We also kind of use a lot of startup nomenclature and kind of operate like a startup in that we're a separate business unit and we're pretty agile and so on. So I was the first hire brought on board to help the head of Gen T build this project. And that was really exciting because it was a blank sheet of paper. It was like working for a startup, but it was a startup within a legacy media company which meant that we had the resources of a legacy media company. So we had stuff like distribution and finance and IT and HR and an amazing creative team and photography team, all these benefits. And when we'd call, we'd say like, hi, I'm calling from Gen T in the early days. And they're like, uh, sorry, what? And you say, I'm calling from Tatler. And they go, oh yeah, Tatler, cool, cool, cool. So that was like an instant, like kind of few steps up the ladder. So we were kind of starting from scratch, but we were sitting on the shoulder of this giant in the region, which is Tatler in the region, which opens a lot of doors, which gave us a lot of benefits. So ultimately, the opportunity to really build something and feel ownership of something from scratch, and to do that regionally across eight markets across Asia was really, really enticing to me. And so that combined with my desire to move to Hong Kong, a different kind of lifestyle, as I just become a new dad, factored in with me moving to Hong Kong to help launch Gen T across Asia. As you've mentioned, Tatler is incredibly established. So what was the reason that they were deciding to launch Genty? Was it because they felt that there was a pivot in terms of the interest and the kind of people they wanted to reach? And what kind of additional thing element did Genty bring? Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, Genty has been a guinea pig for a lot of the evolution that's happened at Tatler over the last couple of years. Since early 2020, when Tatler relaunched and rebranded, it's gone from being a society magazine that covered luxury lifestyle and quote-unquote high society to you know evolving into a much more progressive idea of what influence and what power and what society is. So going from covering like a few families to covering the best of power, influence, and style across Asia, regardless of what the lineage of that is. And Gen T, a few years before this relaunch, was very much a kind of test balloon in that regards, in that it was a platform for people who were successful, who were shaping the future of Asia, regardless of where they came from. And we were launching new media products like uh, newsletters, social media, podcasts for this audience. We were launching a new type of media uh, and a very different kind of tone of voice, a very different brand identity. And I think a lot of the success of that led to Tatler eventually seeing the market to evolve. How are you guys defining, say, what success means and what influence and power means? I think Tatler, like the idea of what society is in general has evolved. And, and Tatler needed to, to evolve with the times to recognize people who are, who are shaping the future of Asia through their work, through their mission rather than because of who their parents were. And that is a change that we're seeing, I think, more and more in the region, particularly in Hong Kong. And Tatler evolved to reflect that, which is really exciting, which was also represented by the fact that we launched the inaugural Asia's Most Influential list in December of this year to honour and to recognise these people. So that's, again, another natural evolution of the Gen T list, which identifies the leaders of tomorrow, people showing huge amount of potential. People have already reached a lot of success already, but have much further to go to be the establishment and AMI, which really celebrates the pinnacle of achievement in business, in philanthropy, in social impact. 
I mean, I feel like there are a lot of lists out there and you have the Forbes 30 under 30, you have the 40 under 40. How were you thinking about creating your own list? Because a lot of the people, when I talk to them, they will always ask me the question of, oh, what's the point of another list? Isn't it just glorifying yourself? Yeah, I can't comment on a competition. You said it, not me. But one of the differences between GMT and some other lists that you can see is that for some other lists, it's a numbers game. It's get a bunch of people on a list, get their name spot right, get a picture, put it in the magazine, click, click, come for a shoot, goodbye. With Gen T, getting on the list is not the end of the journey. It's the beginning of your journey. So we say that Gen T was like the mafia. Like once you're in, like you never get out. So when you come in, when you come onto the Gen T list, that's how we build our community. So getting on the Gen T list, of course, it's an accolade and it's something you can put on your LinkedIn or your Wikipedia page and, and we get that all the time, of course. But it's the benefits that you get from being part of the Gen T community. So it's being covered in our content. It's being connected to like-minded young leaders, both in your country and across Asia as well. It's the kind of ancillary benefits that come from being part of our community, like access to various events or information as well as, yeah, connections you wouldn't otherwise be able to get. I think that's the Gen T difference. We've had so many collaborations between businesses on the Gen T list, people that have met through us. We've lost count. We stopped tracking. We've got uh, about uh, half a dozen companies that have come out of the Gen T list of honorees that have gone on the list for for something else and then met each other and then started another company together. So many investors, investees have met through the Gen T list. We even have a marriage that has come out of our community. So two entrepreneurs that met in Shanghai, they're both on, on the Gen T list from China, met through our event and now uh, married. So, you know, community is at the focus of everything we do. And I think that's the key difference in that we're creating a list to build a community because what we want to do is identify these people. But then once we've done that, we want to help to catalyze their impact. And, and that's where the rewarding part is for me. It's not just like, hey, you're on a list, snap, snap, thanks, bye. It's, it's building relationships, building community with these people and helping them do the amazing things that they do, doing what we can as a media platform to kind of amplify their message, to connect them with others and to support them how we can. Are there particular examples that you're proud of to show that you have really helped to build this community? So many. I think one of the things that's been really gratifying is seeing how through the connections that we've built, people have kind of taken it upon themselves to keep the conversation going. So they will connect with other Gen T honorees uh, across the region. Back when you could travel, you know, I remember meeting a Gen T honoree in KL. And he's like, whenever I travel for business, I'll look at the Gen T list in like Taiwan, say, if I'm going to Taiwan, and I'll find people and I'll message them on Instagram and say, hey, I see your Gen T too. Do you want to join me for a drink? Because he's like, for him, that is like the fact that they're on Gen T is so we've already done the research for them, that there's someone worth knowing. And at a certain level um, where a conversation would be interesting for him. So I think it's things like that. We've really created a community of like-minded people that kind of speaks to how we've been able to build community. And our community have, have come with us on, on highs and lows. Began initially, so Genti was a, uh, incubated under Tatler locally for a couple of years. So like Singapore Tatler had a Genti, Taiwan Tatler had a Genti. And then we took these eight individual kind of sub-brands, like they operated in silo and locally and turned it into one pan-Asia brand. And we did this in early 2019. The goal being to kind of come out with a big uh, launch event, which was the Genti Asia Summit, which is a big ideas festival to kind of uh, celebrate bold and, and, and brilliant ideas and, and leaders that have them in Asia. And then the protests hit in Hong Kong. And so our November day got postponed to April 2020 and the rest. So we had to pivot to virtual events. 
We've done, I don't know, I think 60 or 70 virtual events since the beginning of the pandemic now, too many to recall, but also to small scale community events, which at the time we were like, oh, this has really spanned our plans. Like, how do we really make an impact with these small events? We want to bring like two, 300, 400 people into like a big swanky ballroom and have these amazing like talks and experiences and, and bring people together so they can really connect. Now, how can we fulfill our mission otherwise? But in a way, sometimes when you get lemons to kind of make lemonade, we discovered quite quickly that these small-scale events were actually having potentially more impact than the big events. Because big events are something you can quite easily consume passively. You can go to an event, you can watch a talk, you can meet a couple of people, but then you go back to your hotel room. And that's kind of it. You're still kind of feeling it alone. If you have like a lunch in a pretty private location with like eight entrepreneurs from different industries in the same market and maybe like a, a high level speaker for example which is a, a format we do quite a bit then sparks fly people feel like they can be honest they can share they're not just passively consuming the content they're engaging in the content they're contributing they're asking each other questions they're learning from each other we find that the impact of that is a lot higher because they'll go off and tell 10 people how great that event was rather than if you watch like just a, a panel discussion like oh yeah that was pretty good we run a number of lunches with kind of guest speakers in Hong Kong, for example. And so many times a lot of the honorees will come up and say, that's the best lunch I've had all year. Like, when can I come to another one? This has been like sparks have flown. And so I think that's an example of like in these small ways, how we try and add value to our community. Because ultimately, that's the acid test, right? When you pull together a list of high people based on high achievement, and then you try and build community around them, obviously, these high achievers are exceptionally busy. That's how they got to that level of success. So anything that you do, if you want their attention, if you want their eyeballs on an article, or if you want their time to come to your event, you need to add value to their life. And I think by virtue of just how many successful uh, entrepreneurs and, and leaders of all fields, whether we've all talked on the JNT list, whether it's like Malaysia's youngest parliamentarian or like the founders of like unicorn companies, they make time to come to JNT events. I think that is something that really speaks to the impact we've been able to make. So for those who are looking to organize an event for high achieving people, what are the main things for them to consider? Since clearly Tell has done it really, really well. I think you start with why, <laughs> such as what your podcast is about. I think like when you're building any media product, start with empathy. Start with empathy and put yourself in your audience's shoes and be like, okay, the people we want to reach, what do they need? What do they have right now? What do they not have right now? What can they gain from our offering? And you have to really honestly ask that question because it's very easy to be like, yeah, we're great. So of course everyone would come, but like really, really honestly, like ask yourself that question and try and figure it out. So whoever your audience is, if they need X, go and make sure that you can deliver X for a really, really high quality. So in the case of like entrepreneurs and other young leaders who are very busy and very careful about how they spend their time, you just got to make sure that anything you do is adding value. So maybe it's giving them a connection that they wouldn't otherwise have a connection with. Maybe like it'd be a big tycoon, or maybe someone else in their industry and in another market they might not know. Or maybe it's uh, access to content or information that is exclusive to them. Whatever it may be, you need to make sure that you're answering an audience need. And it's the same no matter what demographic of people you're trying to appeal to. To understand their needs means that it's probably not going to be found on the internet. So that means you need to gain trust for them in order for them to share. How do you gain trust and build that trust with all these different high achieving people? Exactly. Like the, the old, uh, you know, design thinking classic stages, it begins with empathy. 
it starts with listening and not like going in with your preconceived notions, but actually like asking open questions and listening. And I find that to be the most exciting time. So it's actually something I'm doing for another project we're working on at Tatler right now. We're starting with the empathy stage and we're doing some interviews. We're about to start doing some interviews. We'll just finish the questionnaire with some of the honorees on our AMI list, for example. And so I'm going to go to some of the biggest tycoons in Asia and be like, so what do you need (laughs) that you don't already have? And the answer is going to be, well, probably very little. But like, that's the challenge is in trying to find out, because when you have pretty much everything the money can buy, like what can you give them? So you better come up with something unique. And so that's really, really exciting. So it's always starting with trying to figure out your audience and and what motivates them and, and how you can turn a pain point in their life into like a positive. So I do want to dig on that a little bit more. You know, when you first ask that question that they probably would say, well, I don't really need anything. How do you break that boundary and go beyond Yeah, if someone says, I don't need anything, then that's often not true. This is almost certainly apocryphal. I'm pretty sure he never said it. But like, supposedly, Henry Ford said, if I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. No one would have said, oh, a motorized vehicle, just what I need, because nobody could think of it, right? They thought they were fine with their horses. He probably didn't say it's too perfect a quote. But it illustrates quite nicely that sometimes people don't know what they need. And so I think the challenge as like a product builder, whether you're in Silicon Valley or whether you're working for a media company, is listening to to what they're saying or what they're not saying or what they don't even realize they're saying. So maybe they may be complaining about this or the other, but they don't necessarily know what the solution is. One of the other things I I like to generally ask people, because people are are reticent sometimes to talk too much about things that they love or be too effusive. But I generally find if you ask people what pisses them off, they're quite happy to talk and talk like at length. So if you ask that question, obviously not quite like that, with a bit more tact, they're quite happy to offload. And you can learn a lot that way as well. And make sure you're not doing that. That's a fantastic tip. Has there ever been anyone who refused to be on that list? We didn't have anybody, to my knowledge, who's refused to be on the list. In the early days, we had a lot of so what? Like, uh, hey, you're on the Gen T list. Congratulations. They're like, what? Gen T is Tatler's new platform for young entrepreneurs in Asia. Okay, I know Tatler. Okay, cool. Do I have to do anything? Like, you know, that was the kind of the, the general reaction. And it's been brutally honest because like, that's the way it is when you're building any new brand. You know, you need to build equity in the brand. You need people to care about it. You need to, it takes time to kind of build that status among your audience. And even coming with the kind of Tatler name tag, which, which boosted it to a, a, a significant degree in terms of prestige in the region, it still was a struggle to gain credibility with this specific audience segment of like entrepreneurs and, and a kind of younger generation who had different values and were looking at things differently and maybe sort of talent differently. And that changed over time. It went from us calling people and saying, hey, you're on the list," and going, oh, okay, cool, to people coming up to me and saying, how do we get on the list? And that's my most common, the most common thing people ask me when I'm at a networking event or whatever. It's like, hey, my friend's on the list. How do I get on the list? Or like, how can I nominate myself? And, you know, we have a public nomination form. And when we put that up online a few years ago, we didn't get that many applications. Now we get like hundreds, hundreds and hundreds. We get over a thousand a year. So yeah, we never had anyone who didn't want to be on the list, but certainly we had people initially who were not bothered. And what's been a really satisfying part of the journey is building a brand that people have felt an affinity with and that want to be a part of. They've seen the benefit to their friend who may be on the list and they kind of want to be in the club. As one of our honorees who says to our kids, she calls it like mummy's secret spy club or something. 
so her kids can relate to it. It's like a secret place that she goes to where she can learn and, and do cool stuff. Amazing. So two questions arising out of that. You mentioned building equity. Were there particular milestones in building Genty that come to mind that you saw the value of it increasing? Uh, a couple of years ago, just before the pandemic, the Obama Foundation had a leadership summit in KL. They picked like a lot of fellows from across the region to be in their young leaders program. And we saw the website and we're like, wow, this is really cool. And then we started to get suspicious about just how many JNT honorees were in there. And we're like, this is getting more than a coincidence. This is basically a JNT list, but with the cool design uh, Obama branding. And okay, so we kind of reached out to them or they reached out to us. I don't know, like my team in KL. So I ended up going there and because we had so many JNT honorees flying into KL for the event, like dozens and dozens. I went to KL, I got to attend the summit and then we hosted a couple of dinners for the JNT honorees, a kind of unofficial satellite event just because we had so many honorees from across Asia in one city. It was great. Anyway, the organizers uh, that work for the foundation told my colleague, like, yeah, off the record, but we did refer to the JNT list quite a bit when we were doing our research. And that for me was like, oh my God, like we've reached a level of credibility and respect. Obviously, I'm not suggesting that they looked at the list and just copied it, but the, the fact that they use that as a barometer of credibility they were like, when they were sifting through all their applicants and for their fellowship program and were figuring out who's for real, who's not, one of the things they looked at was their profile to learn more information about them. And if we had a profile on them that kind of already started to, they gave them some indication that they'd reached some level of success. That was like, wow, that was a, a big moment for me because this was in the early days as well, at the end of 2019. I was like, wow, we're really starting to make it. Just thinking of a recent example was when we launched the Gen T list at 2021, last September. It was fantastic because we were able to get 100 people together in a hotel ballroom for dinner, which none of us had done at that point for basically almost two years. And so there was incredible crackling atmosphere in the room. I emceed the event. I felt like I was emceeing a riot. It, honestly, it was just so wild in there. It was like a gala dinner, but most people were stood up between tables because they're like, oh my God, I haven't seen so-and-so in so long. And oh, I've always admired Baba Bar. I've wanted to meet them for a long time. You know, there's incredible energy in there. And so we had a lot of, we had entertainment and so on that night. But that day was the day that Danny Young, who's the co-founder of Prenetics, a digital health company that does Circle DNA, but also Project Screen. His company do the vast majority of COVID tests in Hong Kong. They also do tests for Heathrow Airport and a lot of places in the UK. They're the test provider for like the Premier League in the UK and La Liga and so on. So like one of Hong Kong's heroes of COVID. So it was announced that day that his company was going uh, public like a one point something billion dollar valuation like via a SPAC. And he hadn't slept the night before because he'd been like up all night working the night before. And then from like 6 a.m., he was doing like Bloomberg and CNN and FT and all this stuff. And then he came straight away from a town hall meeting with his staff to come to our event. And that for me was like, we've got to a level where we really are bringing these people together. He had this insane day, this massive like milestone. It was the first like Hong Kong unicorn company to become publicly listed. And, and the founder chose to come to our event that night to celebrate. And I pulled him up on stage and I did a kind of semi-impromptu fireside chat. The guy hadn't slept for two days, but he was <laughs> admirably kind of kept it together. I was looking around, I was looking at the stage, the person next to me, and I was looking at the people in the audience. And I was like, wow, we really have the most successful, coolest entrepreneurs and young leaders in Hong Kong under one roof right now. You know, I was looking at, there's like one of Hong Kong's best known jockeys. It's that right there. And then there's like Eric Nokfar, the founder of Kluke, like another unicorn company. Jack Jang Airwallocks, like 
it may even be a decacorn now, a huge company. They were all under one room. And that was like, wow, that's the power of Gen T, that we could bring people together. We could celebrate Danny Young's achievement. People kind of felt comfortable and, and felt part of something. So we talked about the list, the community. So we have to discuss how you actually come up with that list. I understand that the entire process is actually nine months and you go through it with your team. Like, can you give us you know, behind the scenes look of what that is like? Yeah, coming up with a Gen T list is uh, a huge headache, but it's one worth having because it's important. It's how we build our community. And also it's kind of like our pre-vetting for all our content because we write stories from the editorial lens of the people and ideas and businesses shaping the future of Asia for the better. So when we kind of create the list throughout the year, we then write stories on the people and the people on their list and their businesses. So it's kind of like we're focusing on people who are creating solutions. You know, we don't write with rose tinted glasses. So we write very objectively, but by nature, we're covering kind of the positive impact that they make. So it's a very, very difficult job. But once it's done, we have just a long list of amazing stories to write for the year. Yeah, it's a massive process and it does take about nine or 10 months. It's a huge headache, to be honest, but it's something that's very, very important to get right because that's how we build our community. So to get the right names is a multifaceted process. Obviously, we do our own market research. We ask past honorees to nominate people for the list. And then we also, every year, we find a tribe. We call them a tribe. This is our panel of industry leaders who nominate names to the list and help us to vet them. And this is really, really important as well. So they'll nominate people from their industry. And then we have our own nominations, people that are getting a lot of media attention or people that other honorees have nominated or people that we're just we're familiar with. And then we also ask our tribe members like, hey, you didn't nominate X, even though like he or she is in your industry. Why not? What do you think of them? And so we kind of really stress test every single nomination with, with this committee uh, of people who have kind of seen it all, done it all. We're talking about pretty big people, like on our tribe this year was Stephen Chen, who's a co-founder of YouTube. These tribes, you have a different tribe for each jurisdiction? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it's anywhere between like 70 to 80 people in total. So most markets, we have about 10 people on the tribe, 10 or 12 people, a key part of it. But another key part of it is we have a proprietary scoring system. So we have a number of different metrics that we look at. And it's a million dollar question, right? How do you measure positive impact? Like it's very, very difficult to do, but we we certainly, as much as we can, we try to quantify it through some in-house metrics, which are obviously under lock and key. I can't share with you exactly the secret source, but we do what we can to objectively quantify it and to put kind of numbers against various achievements. But the key criteria for the Gen T list is achievement in the last 18 months. So it doesn't matter like how big you've got your company five years ago, if it's still at the same level. It doesn't matter if you have a big name and the media is writing about you a lot. We look at an achievement. So have you entered a bunch of new markets with your company? Have you had a huge fundraising round? Have you just launched an innovative new product? All of these things are things that we look at for the list and that we will rate people based on what they've been doing in the last 18 months. So sometimes you'll get back on the list. But a lot of the time, the list is about a 98% churn. It's new names because we're looking at what's happened in the last 18 months. And people who come back on the list are people that just hit like milestone after milestone, basically. Some of it's quite easy to quantify. Like I mentioned before, like I say, Malaysia's youngest parliamentarian. That's something that you can hang your hats on. Like, wow, this person is really leading. And then maybe someone's done like a $100 million like Series B round. And you're like, wow, okay, this company is clearly valued by the market very, very highly. But then there's other people cultural leaders and so on, who it's a bit more difficult to quantify. People, philanthropists, people in social enterprises, 
these people, we ask ourselves, like, objectively, like, objectively as we can, can we say that their work has made the world a better place in the last 18 months? Has their work made the world more sustainable or more beautiful or more generous or more humane in, in some kind of way or more equitable? And if their work has contributed to making the world more equitable, more sustainable, whatever it may be, then we'll strongly consider them for the list. I imagine you must have safeguards in place to ensure that you don't fall into the trap that certain lists have. And they will have a nominee on, and there's a recent controversy. There was one person on that list, and it turns out that everything that he was being talked about was all false. How do you ensure that this doesn't happen to you? Because one incident can ruin everything. Yes, yes, absolutely. I think by having the thorough vetting process that I just mentioned is really all you can do to avoid a, a controversy such as that. I'm sure that the list that put the individual that, that you're referring to have very thorough processes as well. But yeah, all I can speak of is, is from my example, which is like, we do our best to not leave any stone unturned. And certainly like our proprietary scoring system is, is helpful, but you're still relying on information that, that they have provided sometimes. So having that industry insight, having the tribe and having the relation, a strong relationship with the tribes, so not just so that these industry experts like giving us a name over email, then like, that's it. Maybe they'll come to the launch party. Like we get on the phone with them. We have coffee meetings with them. We go to their office with a long list and a clipboard and like ask for their, for their insights on people that they didn't nominate, people that they didn't nominate. That's incredibly, incredibly useful. And again, from day one with Genty, that's where being part of the Tatler group really gave us a, a leg up. Because we could like reach out to these big tycoons and established people from day one and say like, hey, do you want to help us with this project? And because we were calling from Tatler, they said yes. If we were calling from a startup media company, they probably would have said, well, they wouldn't have picked up. So based on the kind of people that you've been having on your list, do you see a trend in terms of the kind of people who are coming on and the kind of things they're doing? Everybody's making the world a better place. Everybody's having a positive social impact on the world, whether it's yeah, making the world more equitable, more sustainable, more beautiful through their works. The, the trends we see on the list are trends that we're seeing across society and across entrepreneurship in Asia. Our sustainability category is growing every year. Our social entrepreneurship category is growing every year. Our finance and VC category is growing every year because there's more and more people in crypto and NFTs. And I'm sure this year is going to be the year of NFT on the Gen T list. So yeah, the trends are generally reflective of that. I think one of the great strengths of the Gentry list is its diversity. Someone in our community, they'll often say like, hey, I'm a fintech entrepreneur, for example, but I know all the fintech entrepreneurs in Hong Kong or Singapore, wherever they're from, but only through Gentry would I be at a dinner sat next to an Olympic gold medalist. And then like next to them is like, you know, a world-renowned artist and next to them is like a Michelin star chef or whatever. Like that diversity is really strong. And then that fintech entrepreneur can also be connected to someone else in their industry in another market they might not otherwise know. So in general, the list is very, very diverse, but certain trends do emerge. The world of social entrepreneurship being one, sustainability being another one. And of course, cryptocurrencies, everything, NFTs, and probably the metaverse, we'll see a couple of honorees on this year's list. You've clearly done a lot. You've built this community. The question I suppose a lot of people will have would be, what's in it for Gen T? Because you are ultimately a business. How do you generate revenue to continue doing what you're doing? So like a lot of media companies, we rely on advertising and sponsorship to support what we do. So we work quite closely with partners who want Gen T to put their spin and, and editorial lens and credibility to produce like branded content for them. Or sometimes we'll do co-branded events with the Gen T community. And what we like to do is like win-win-win events. 
So we'll try and do like small intimate events where the partner is able to really bring something to the table for the honorees. Maybe it's like access to a high quality speaker they have that the honorees want to meet. And at the same time, the sponsor wants to meet them. We always do stuff where it's kind of like win-win for the community and the, the sponsor. So other things that you do, the newsletters you mentioned earlier, there's also the podcast Crazy Smart Asia and you are on it as well sometimes. Can you tell us a bit about what that experience is like? Because you've interviewed some really, really interesting people as well, like Jimmy Wells. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Jimmy Wales, I met when he was a guest on a virtual event that we did and, and I asked him to go on our podcast, which he said yes to. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I find it much easier being on your side. <laughs> it is. Like I said, uh, I think off mic, this interview has given me massive imposter syndrome because some of the caliber of some of the other guests you've had on this podcast, I'm like, why am I telling a podcast audience like why I went to school? <laughs> Who cares? I, I'm feeling very big imposter syndrome right now. Right now. So yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a real, real pleasure so far. So yeah, I, I enjoy being on the other side. Like, and this is what I get out of my out of my job is that I'm really curious and I love storytelling, of course, and. The majority of people on the Gen Z list that we do coverage on, they have these incredible, incredible stories. And Crazy Smart Asia gives us the long form capability to really tell those stories in their own words. Like there's only so much you can do with even like a 2000 word article, like but to spend like 45 minutes talking to somebody and hear the intonation in their voice, what gets them riled up, what gets them morose. Like that's really, really exciting. And so far, Kevin Kwan hasn't sued us for, for using the, the crazy Asian bit, which is good. I mean, like, I saw quite a few of the interviews that you've done before. You clearly love it. You're very natural at it. What is your process in preparing for these kind of interviews? I think no different from yours. I've listened to a lot of your interviews and a lot of your interviewees have said, like, your research is so good. <laughs> and I have to say, I the exact same opinion. I don't know if you've been calling my mom or what, but like you seem to know a lot about me, which is um, really impressive. So I don't think it's really any different in that we'll do some research on the guests. We'll often do a pre-interview just to kind of break the ice and get a sense of like what they're excited about, what they're interested in talking about. I'll maybe test the water then if there's something like uncomfortable potentially for them to talk about. I'll see if they're willing to do it because they'll say yes, and that's great. And if they say no, then you get rid of the frostiness on the pre-call rather than, rather than the recorded interview. And yeah, and otherwise just kind of record a longer podcast and then edit out the boring questions. But that's what I love most about my job is I get to meet some of the, just the coolest, most influential leaders in all different kinds of fields. Back when we could travel every year when we launched the list, I get to fly around the region and go to the launch parties in each of our eight markets across Asia. It's like entering a cheat code in a video game. Right. So I'd like kind of fly into a city, like I fly into KL, for example, like dump stuff in a hotel room, get changed, go downstairs, usually to the ballroom of the same hotel. And then there's like 50 of the most inspirational, amazing leaders and entrepreneurs in that country. And they're all under one roof. It's like shooting fish in a barrel, go from one to the other to the other. And so for me, someone who's very kind of curious and just gets really, really excited in, in telling people stories and hearing about the things people have gone through and what they've overcome and what they've been able to achieve. That's what gets me excited every day by coming into work. Is there a particular person that comes to mind right now that has really excited you recently? The last episode of Crazy Smart Asia, we interviewed uh, Nadine Lustre, who's a big pop star and an actor in the Philippines, like huge, 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 10 million plus Instagram followers or something. And she's been quite candid in the past talking about mental health. And, and in the pre-interview, I was like, we talked about this in the past. And then she kind of mentioned like suicidal thoughts and so on. And, you know, I was like, are you willing to discuss this? And obviously it's very personal to you. She said that she was, she was willing to discuss her, her brother's suicide and so on. So I went into the interview, obviously, with the utmost tact. 
And we had a conversation and she was so incredibly brave and honest. And she revealed quite a bit about her struggles with depression and a suicide attempt that she, she'd made that she'd never revealed before. I, I didn't know the conversation would go there at all. And I was just kind of bowled over by her bravery and how she's this big pop star actor that could just be like raking in the sponsorship deals, product placement on her Instagram, etc. But like, she doesn't have to talk about that stuff, but she's using her platform because she wants to raise awareness of suicide and depression and destigmatize it. And that's a microcosm of everyone that's on the GNT list. We think of pop stars as maybe not sometimes the, the deepest of people or whatever, but like everyone on the GNT list, we identify them for a reason. And she kind of really showed that in that episode and that she had this courage and tenacity to talk about a really difficult topic. So that was something that genuinely bowled me over that, that we did recently. Like I said, that was the last episode of the most recent season of our podcast. And for me, that hits home because I used to be a Samaritan volunteer back when I lived in the UK which is a kind of suicide prevention line, which is difficult for me because it's listening and usually I'm a big talker. <laughs> but joking aside, it, I did it because it's really important because suicide kills like more people under 40 than anything, or, or maybe a second after car crashes, but it's a huge silent killer and it's really, really important. And Nadine just kind of stood up and was like, I'm going to use my platform to kind of spread this message. So that was a recent example. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. I mean, we've talked a lot about what you've done before. But what's coming for in the future? Do you have any plans for the future? Does Genty have any plans for the future? What can we expect? So yeah, plans for the future, a lot. We are hoping eventually to be able to deliver on that promise of a summit um, this year, <laughs> should COVID restrictions allow. But I think one of the most exciting new projects we have, we're not a continuation of, of things. We're looking forward to the Genty list this year. There'll be a new season of our podcast and, uh, and so on. One of the most exciting new products that we're launching is called Genty Disrupt which is an online learning course. So basically like a masterclass style videos, but aimed at millennial and Gen Z young professionals in Asia who are looking to upskill and, and give their career a boost. We have partnered up with Sofa Soda, which is a startup in this space run by Tim Yu, who is a Gen T honoree and, and good friend of, of Gen T's. He's created this platform. We've partnered with him. We're creating 10 courses with Gen T honorees as the talent to kind of teach people everything from like NFTs to like emotional intelligence, public speaking, entrepreneurship and leadership to help them upskill and disrupt basically. That's why it's called Gen T Disrupt. So that's really, really exciting because a lot of what we do is we do put out a lot of content to a wider audience, but also a lot of what we do and the value we bring is to the people in that community, the Gen T honorees. So this product is truly like B2C. It's out there with the mission of helping our wider audience to kind of like, uh, yeah, upskill and, and improve themselves. So that's super, super exciting. We're doing five in Taiwan with a Gen T honorees from our Taiwan list, which will be in Mandarin. That's launching next month. And then uh, starting this summer, we're doing five with our Hong Kong honorees. The super, super exciting. Tim Yu is one of our good friends, very inspiring entrepreneur. He's the founder of Snap Ask, which a lot of people will be familiar with. It's like Uber for tutors. You take a picture of your homework and get connected with a tutor. So he's built one really impressive business already that's doing incredibly well. And he's launching now a second one. And I'm sure it's going to reach equally stratospheric heights as well. So for me, that's been, been one of the most fun things the last couple of months, because as I've said a couple of times, I love building media products. And this for me is totally new space. Like I know nothing about online video courses uh, and uh, so to work with a partner with expertise in the space, but to bring the Gen T brand, Gen T editorial voice, and of course people from our community and working with them to kind of put something out into the market that we're really proud of has been another cool process. 
And even though you've talked about imposter syndrome before, I'm sure there are lots of people listening who really admire what you've done and want to follow in your footsteps. What advice do you have for these people? Don't beat yourself up too much. I had a pretty slow start in my career. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I felt like definitely in my mid to late 20s, I had to play a little bit of catch up because I was kind of treading water, worried about making a wrong move and, and almost like paralyzed in living too many different directions that I could take. And, and so I didn't kind of didn't take any of them. And then I realized that I was, I was being so hard on myself. Like, Lee, if you haven't done this out the other by the time you're 24, your career is over. And that's very much not the case. I'm now realizing at the grand old age of 36, life's a long game. Just kind of be easy on yourself, be kind to yourself, just take it one step at a time, just make sure you're focusing on improving yourself, always being in receiving mode, try and learn and soak up as much as you can, do jobs that challenge your, yourself, do jobs that you find rewarding. And you know, if you go into it with the, the right mentality, then things will come. So do you feel like at this point you have found your why? I think I'm closer to finding it. I think I've discovered in the last decade, a lot of whys. I don't think people have one why. At least I don't. There's a lot of things that make me excited to do what I do and to get out of bed in the morning. And they include coming up, building media products that audiences love. Also mentoring and training other people in the industry where I'm able to. Like there's a lot of satisfaction in that, in like helping people in the early stages of their career. I think there's a few different whys. There's a few different things that make me excited to be doing what I'm doing. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to find some others in my career because I'm very much an unfinished piece of work myself. And I think over time, I'll discover even more. And that's exciting. Like if you feel like you've just found all your whys, then what's there left to kind of reach for? I found a couple of them. And what's this space, I suppose? And throwing in a wild card here, what is one thing that you feel you should be doing, but you aren't? And why? Despite what I just said, I think I should probably be less hard on myself even than I am because everybody has a proclivity to, to be a bit hard on themselves and to compare themselves to others and to kind of wish they were doing certain things or wish they'd done things a little bit better. And so I think I should be better at that. Although I think as we've touched upon before, everything begins with empathy, right? But I think I can always, you can always be more empathetic. You can always listen more. So I think there's a lot of things that I feel like I'm still learning how to do and, and I want to get better at them. And what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? I think as relating to what I just said, I'd like there to be a lot of younger journalists who would be like, yeah, I learned a lot from that guy. To be remembered as someone with humility, because I think without humility, there's no growth, right? Like everything starts in humility if, if you don't have that. And humility doesn't mean a lack of decisiveness. It doesn't mean a lack of leadership. It means listening to people. It means not thinking you have all the answers. So I guess to be remembered as somebody who brought people together, who helped people be their very best selves at work and led with humility and, and represented them. What do you think are the most important qualities of a successful person? Yeah, humility. Because obviously at Gen T, one of my favorite things is I get to meet all these people that have much better answers than I do to this question. Usually what they'll say is certainly humility for sure, but a lot of them will say a persistence and having kind of, and it's a cliche, but learning how to fail and learning from it and, and getting back up when you do. I mean, like all cliches, it's a cliche because it's true, right? So certainly what I've learned from the honorees and the entrepreneurs in that community is the value of persistence. Persistence and consistency. You can't just like be your best self a few weeks out of the year. You've got to be your best self every week. You can't just be hustling a couple of days a week. You've got to be hustling every single day and just 
having that tenacity and getting back up when you do get knocked down, like dusting yourself off and just keep walking. Showing up is, is half the battle. So just having that tenacity and, and not being afraid to fail and then just leading with humility. There's too many people in the world that are like bosses, not leaders. And I think that admitting you don't have all the answers is the first step to doing something genuinely innovative. If you think that you have all the answers, you're never going to truly innovate. You're just going to iterate. And where can people go to connect with you, find out more about what you're doing as Ugenti? If you want to find me, you can find me on all the various channels, LinkedIn, Instagram. For people who are misguided enough to want to be me in a few years, then uh, you can connect with me and I'd be happy to, to answer any questions. And Generation T, you can find us at Generation T underscore Asia on Instagram. Or listen to our podcast, Crazy Smart Asia, available wherever you get podcasts. And for general information or to read our stuff, generationt.asia. And I put all those links in the show notes. Before I run it up, you actually mentioned that you had stopped drinking four years ago. What's the story behind that? Mm, yeah, I did. So I, I did dry January in 2018, and I'm still doing it technically. It's the longest, driest January on record. It was one of those things. I just moved to Hong Kong, and my wife and my son, who was like 18 months at the time, hadn't yet joined me. And so I was like, well, I guess meet some friends and kind of go to pubs or whatever, like as, as I would do in Beijing, who I probably won't see that much when, when my family get here. Or I can, you know, run a bit more because I, I like running and kind of try and get into a bit more shape. Because in Beijing, I love my job, as I mentioned, and it was to prophesize about how great the city was, but it was also to know the city's like F&B scene. And so a lot of my professional network, and my personal network were kind of the same. And there was always uh, a new bar opening or there was always a new restaurant that had a new menu. So I put on an awful lot of weight. I was like uh, 108 kgs, pretty big. If you look back at pictures of me, it looks like I've been like stung by a bee or something. It looks like one of those like face apps where like you can kind of change somebody. <laughs> so I was looking to lose some weight. So this is what instigated it. But all of a sudden, like after a month, I just felt I had more time. I wasn't like going out later. So I was getting up earlier. Uh, and then I had more energy for that obvious reason. I don't know. I just had more clarity, more focus, kind of better moods. I had less fat and more money, which is the right ratio of everything. And I, I generally, and I know that everything has come back to empathy today, but I felt like I had more empathy. I feel like a lot of the time in conversations, people are waiting for their chance. They're not listening. They're waiting for their to speak. That really accentuated when people are drinking, had a couple of drinks, they're, they're not really listening, they're waiting for their chance to blah, blah, blah. So for me, yeah, it wasn't an addiction issue or anything. But when I did it for a month, I was like, oh, that's interesting. I feel really good. I was like, let me see if I can do it for three months. And I did. And I was like, let me see as a personal wellness challenge. Can I do a year without drinking? That would be quite the achievement. And then I did. And then by the end of the year, like my brain had rewired. It's like, like, I was like, I guess I'm going to start drinking again now. And I was like, why? which is like as a British male in his early 30s was a very strange realization. So yeah, so I, I still kind of reap the benefits in terms of like more focus at work and generally better sleep and so on, and have more time for my son and everything. Is there anything else you'd like to share that we haven't covered so far? I think, yeah, this has been a lot of fun. And I've shared more in the last hour and a half or so than I have with anyone for a long time. And I've really enjoyed it. So I don't think I, I have anything else to give. But yeah, I want to say thank you so much for inviting me on your podcast. I think it's fantastic. I love what you're doing. And it's been a real, real treat. Like a real honor to be invited. So thank you so much. And that was the end of episode 72. The show notes and transcript can be found at so thisismywide.com forward slash 72. And stay tuned for next Sunday.
because it would be meeting one of Asia's only two Black VCs about his journey from being an entrepreneur in the Netherlands and being on the same board as the CEO of ING, the Prime Minister of New Zealand and the head of the UN. To his time at Harvard, before taking up a role as a VC in Singapore. We talk about his experience raising $60 million for his fund, how LPs are different in Southeast Asia compared to Europe and the US, and the types of founders he works with. If you want to learn more about what it's like being a VC in Southeast Asia, then stick around and see you next Sunday.